Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show, the show where we discuss what I'm going to do on somebody else's show, which is part of what we're going to talk about today with Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson, Master of the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. And, uh, and yes, we are going to talk about my guest hosting tomorrow on, on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt Show, uh, as well as lots of other things. Dwayne, welcome back. Always great to be here. And, uh, you know, as... As the world gets crazier and crazier, as politicians get bonkers uh, to an even more absurd uh, level, I can think of no one I would much rather analyze and mock and just basically revel in the stupidity with than Ed Morrissey. Well, yeah, we're going to get a chance to do this tonight. <laughs> tonight the on the after show. Yes, yeah. uh, indeed. As well as on the Hugh Hewitt show tomorrow. Tomorrow. Um and we'll talk about all the guests we've got lined up for tomorrow uh, later on in this uh, podcast. Um, that will be a short conversation, at least so far. But hey, Kurt uh, Kurt Schlichter came in uh, today and yesterday, and you know I've got I've got like world class video clips, right? I mean I've I've got if if you're looking for the Olympics of stupid, I mean I've got I've got you know all sorts of contenders. You know, podium contenders day after day this week, and Kurt had eight guests, nine guests out of the out of the twelve segments today. He had eight guests out of the twelve segments yesterday. God bless him. A fine collection of guests. My my prep was not heard by the masses, so <laughs> tomorrow it will be. Tomorrow, tomorrow will be all about Dwayne's show prep. <laughs> It's going to be great, naturally, naturally, everybody's going to go mute tonight. And, and, and all of DC is going to call a lid, you know, with, with, with just my luck, but no, if, if tomorrow is anything like today, um, we're going to have no shortage of dumb things said. Uh, uh, well, there you go. There's no shortage of dumb things said today. Uh, you know, we're, we're coming into this. We just got the consumer price index report, um, highest, uh, highest consumer price index, but before we, in 40 years, but before we even get to that, we got to talk about Kamala Harris in Poland. And um, I think in Poland, they're going to be telling Kamala Harris jokes. You know, when I grew up, you know, the Polish jokes were all, were, were the thing. Now I think they're going to be telling Kamala Harris jokes in Poland. So I, I started the morning. One. <laughs> so I started the morning. Um, it was about 4 a.m. my time uh, when I looked up. And I saw on my TV screen, I've always got the sound down. I've got this, you know, the closed caption going so I can read what's going on. I've got too much noise in here anyway. So I, I, I normally don't have the sound up unless I really need to. I look up and I see a joint presser in Warsaw with, with uh, Kamala Harris and uh, Polish uh, President uh, Duda. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, this can't be good. And I really didn't even want to turn up the sound. I put up a tweet saying... My guess is Kamala Harris is probably uh, discussing the inner nuances of kielbasa versus other sausages and um, how much it's, we need to support our NATO meat partners. That's th that to me is what I that that's the level of discourse I expect from Kamala Harris. Um, so it was going on and on and on. And I finally went, OK, crap, I got to at least take a peek. I literally turn up the volume. As I hear. Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States, representing not just the United States, but the the lead dog in NATO, 
with a very strategic NATO partner in Poland where there's some controversy about whether or not we're going to play a shell game with some jets to be able to get some uh, air firepower to the Ukrainians, wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, I'm thinking, okay, this could be important. It's not. Here's what Kamala Harris actually said. I am here, standing here on the northern flank, on the eastern flank, talking about what we have in terms of the eastern flank and our NATO allies, and what is at stake at this very moment. Okay, let's let's let's. This is the, the first half. Flank. This is the first half of the cut. Just the first half of the cut. Because the second half, we need to dissect as well for different reasons. But the first half of the cut. Let's, this, is, let's, this is prepared. These are prepared remarks, right? Either this is her prepared remarks. There's no prompter. This is Kamala Harris on the plane on the way over being briefed by staff. She had the briefing book. Okay, Madam Vice President, you're going to Poland. Now, Poland is a big country in <laughs> Europe. Right? I mean, this is we have read how many stories, Ed, you and me, how many stories have we read in places like Politico, Washington Post, New York Times, mainstream media sources. Yeah, these who are, are saying constant, constant. Who yeah. are saying that the problem with Kamala Harris is she refuses to take briefings. It's not that she's just an ignorant moron. It's that she has shown no desire to correct her shortcomings on her knowledge set. She she's not interested in learning anything about this stuff. Right. Right. She doesn't want to get briefed. So she's on the plane on the way over as God only knows what's going to happen in this in this uh, war in Ukraine. And she's on the stage with the president of Poland, President Duda. And she says, I'm standing here, right here. Well, where else would she be standing than right here? I'm sitting right here. You're sitting right there. Right, right here. there. I'm right here. I, yes. I, I'm right here. Where, where else would you be? I mean, rhetorically. I'm, I'm in rhetorically, Texas. Where else, I'm in Texas. Where else would I want to be? <laughs> right. It's rhetorically stupid. Yeah. So she says, I'm here. I'm standing here, right here on the northern flank. And she catches herself. No, that's that's probably not right. Where am I? I'm on the eastern flank of NATO. Yep, that's where I am. I'm not on the northern flank. I'm on the eastern flank. Well, let's just kind of picture, if you will, the map of, of Europe, would you? You've got Poland, and do you know who their neighbor is to the north and the east? The, the Baltic states are to the north and, and slightly to the east of, just, of Poland. Just to the north and the east, if you were to like take a clock face and you put the center of the of the clock face in Warsaw, you go at about two o'clock. And two o'clock, which is northeast, you go zipping right into Lithuania. Right. So Lithuania, which is a NATO state, is northier and eastier. Of Poland. Well, Norway is northier, at least, and Norway is a NATO member. Well, correct. I understand. Right. I mean, I so, mean, so there's a lot of north above, above Poland. There's a hell yeah. of a lot. Right. You could make the case that Norway is saying northern flank. 
Really? What, what was that? <laughs> come, come, come again? I'm looking. I'm looking. I'm looking due south at how stupid you are, and you're saying that you're standing in the northern flank. I'm north of you, and and I'm looking at your back. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. So that's the northern flank. But but then she says, I'm coming from the eastern flank. Well, Lithuania is still north and east of Poland. And then you have that same clock face. You've got that same same geometric arc. And you keep going northeast. And now you're into Latvia. Latvia is to the north and to the east of Lithuania, which is to the north and the east of Poland. And then you keep cruising right through Latvia. And you know what you're going to hit next? Estonia. Estonia. Yeah. That's another NATO country. And they're the they're not the northeast because we've already established Norway is, but they're certainly the eastiest of 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 the of the NATO yeah, countries. They're, they're pretty easty. Yeah. Um and, and you know why they're the eastiest? Because both Latvia and Estonia, guess who their border is on their eastiest side? Belarus. No, 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 no. Estonia and Latvia. Oh, guess what? Russia. Guess who they touch? Russia. Russia. Yeah. So by definition, if you're talking NATO countries, by definition, if you touch Russia, that's about as eastern flank as you can get. That's easty. That's pretty darn easty. That's that's as easty as you can get. And that's a far sight easier than where Kamala Harris's ass is in Poland. Yeah. Not that I'm minimizing Poland at all. God love the, the kielbasa, but they're not the eastern flank. They're no. not the northern flank. They're Poland. Okay. All right. So I think we've that, I think we've beaten that one pretty much to death. That's Let's the move first on. To, half, that's the to, first half of the clip. That's the first here's, half of the first clip. Here's the rest of the clip. What is at stake this very moment are some of the guiding principles around the NATO alliance and in particular, the issue and the importance of defending sovereignty and territorial integrity, in this case of Ukraine. Um, Ed Morrissey, just a quick question. In the guiding principles of NATO, we, where exactly is that clause of the guiding principles of NATO to protect the uh, territorial sovereignty of a non-NATO state? Uh, which, it doesn't which, which exist. Clause, I think which clause is that? I think she's actually... Um talking about the United Nations Charter here. I think she's confused. So she's conflating NATO with the UN. Yes. I'm pretty sure that... I mean, it's tough, It's difficult to know what's going on inside Kamala Harris's head. Does she think the that... Echoes are, the echoes are just brutal there, Dwayne. So it's hard, to, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in her head, but I'm, does I'm she pretty sure think that's that, what it was. Does she think that Brussels is the eastern flank of NATO? <laughs> or does or does she want sprouts in her salad for lunch? Uh, I think sprouts. I think she's looking for sprouts, man. Uh, look, I I don't know if, if that was the case, we'd already be at war with Russia, right? I mean, if that was the case, we we wouldn't be we wouldn't be uh, excuse the phrase dicking around with some whether to transfer a few dozen MIGs from uh, Poland to uh, Ukrainian pilots. We'd already be in there with right. with much heavier weaponry and. The reason why we're not is because Ukraine isn't part of NATO. 
And and for good reason. There's a good reason Ukraine's not part of NATO. because if They we, haven't we, agreed to it, and they haven't ponied we up percent We haven't agreed to it. Nobody has. <laughs> nobody has. Nobody's, nobody has. Nobody has. Let's just... Let's just has, say Ukraine's NATO, not part. Let's not, let's not get into the big, long, convoluted thing about this. Right. But has Ukraine filled out the application and said, here's our 2% check? No, they haven't done that yet. Well, it's because they haven't been invited to do it. Right. NATO, do, NATO doesn't want, NATO really doesn't want, especially now, doesn't want Ukraine inside NATO because they don't want to have to do an Article 5 intervention when Russia invades uh, invades Ukraine, which is exactly what happened here. Without without having the, 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 the resources and the money to go along with it. Right, exactly. But you know who they're sure entertaining the idea of now? Finland. Finland. Yeah, Finland. And, is, Sw- is, and Sweden's going to be right behind them, too. Yep, yep. Finland's going to be first. Finland is Finland's got a big whiff of what's going on in Ukraine and doesn't want any part of that of that nonsense. And now Finland wants to join NATO. Now they haven't been in NATO. They've refused NATO membership for 80 years, right? Or well, but the polling sure, but the polling sure has changed in Finland on that subject in the yes, last it couple has. of weeks. Yes. Now now they understand that Russia is not just a uh, a, a normal country, but is actually an active threat against yes. them. Yes. Yes. They understand that. Probably better than most do anyway, but yeah, I think what the I think what what really is happening in Finland is that they've realized that joining NATO isn't really going to be a provocation that matters anymore. <laughs> Putin is just wanting to get the Soviet band back together, and they're looking and just like the Soviets, they'd want to run over Finland to to do it. And sure. and so yeah, that's uh, the home of the Molotov cocktail. I think has finally decided that. Um, all things being equal, they'd rather be part of NATO than yeah. not. <laughs> all <laughs> right. blame them. Now, now we have more. I, I think we have more from Kamala Harris. Um, uh, do you have the clip in which uh, she was asked a question and burst I, out laughing? I, uh, I, I, I can probably play that if I play it off of Grabian. Let me. Uh... You can probably get that one if you if you look at Tom Elliott, who's of course runs Grabian. If you look at his. Um, if you look at his Twitter feed, you might be able to find it there. I'd play it, yeah. but then you wouldn't be able to see it. So no, I can probably do it. Let me go here and here, and uh, but, but I mean, but, this but, is but. bizarre. While you're looking for this, I'm just going to set this up. Now, it is not unusual. In fact, it's the normal thing to do joint uh, to do joint press conferences mm-hmm. with um, with a head of state if you're a vice president or president. And then you usually hold the pressers, although sometimes that doesn't take place. Um, it hasn't happened with Biden as often as it used to. But um, when a reporter asks a question of either head of state, there's really no protocol there. The The person who's asked the question is supposed to answer it. Right. Um, now, I, I set that up as, uh, as, a, as context, because what you're going to see here is Kamala Harris being asked about a refugee crisis that's about two weeks away from collapsing. Right. And there's nothing really funny about this topic, Dwayne. And yet here is um, our Veep reacting to this. I wanted to ask you about some reporting that my colleague here in Poland noticed. He recently spoke with the mayor of the largest border town who told him that the refugee system is essentially not set up for this, that it will collapse. It's an improvised system that can work for maybe two weeks, but not indefinitely. And I'm wondering what the United States is going to do more specifically to set up a permanent infrastructure. And relatedly, is the United States willing to make a specific allocation for Ukrainian refugees? And for President Duda, I wanted to know if 
you think and if you asked the United States to specifically accept more refugees? Okay. <laughs> a friend in need is a friend indeed. <laughs> okay, I, yeah, I can first. Okay, so this time. What the hell was that? <laughs> I mean, she can't even answer the question. She and can't answer the question. A she friend in need is a friend indeed. I mean, she, she doesn't know protocol. I mean, typically, when you go on a trip like this, you not only are briefed on the politics and the policy of the situation, but you are briefed on the protocol of the situation. Yeah. She, she can't be bothered with any of it. She's, she, she only cares. There's only one thing in the world she cares, and that's the next rung up on the ladder that she can climb to. That's all she cares about. Nothing else. I, I that's 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 all minutia to her. I don't I don't want to deal with this. I just need whatever platform is going to possibly get me to the next level on the ladder. You know, I don't know if you're going to remember this movie, Dwayne, because I think you were a little too young to to recall it when it first came out. But there was a terrible movie called National Lampoon's Movie Madness. Oh, I never saw it. I, I, I remember the movie coming out. I, I never saw it. Okay. One of the segments, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, a you know, one of these, um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's like skits. It, this was a Zucker thing, right? This was a, 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 a Zucker, Abram Zucker thing right. that, that came out. Um, and one of the segments of this thing was, was about this woman who basically sleeps her way to the top of the margarine industry <laughs> in like, in like five days. I mean, it's the concept is funny. The execution was not great, but um, <laughs> but the concept was funny. And I was watching this the other day because I have this uh, proclivity to watch really bad movies over and over again. <laughs> I don't know why. I just love bad movies. And um, and the whole time I'm sitting there thinking, this is like this is Kamala Harris. <laughs> This is one heart, one heartbeat away. One heartbeat away from the from running the entire margarine industry. Um, one heartbeat away, which brings me to two heartbeats away from the presidency. <laughs> uh, are we are we going to get into the whole face plant that uh, House Democrats executed yesterday on the on the? Oh, we can. Bill? We can't. We certainly can. But. It was during that press conference after the face plant where Nancy Pelosi showed at 78 why, you know, maybe showing up drunk to work is 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 not what you want to do. Because she had a press conference where people were looking at each other going, is she all right? She looks like she may have been, you know, nipping at nipping at the bottle a little bit. After she yesterday, was, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we. I, I, she might have an excuse after yesterday. She might have an excuse after yesterday. That is that is entirely true. Um, she had a um, she had a, a comment yesterday that was rather remarkable. Let me see if I can get this up on the old uh, screen. Uh, here she is. 
Um, is that the right one? Is that the right one? Uh, that doesn't look like the right one. Let me close this out. Well, while, while you're while you're doing that, I'm going to just um, explain what the face plant was, which was that. Oh yeah, for some, reason, for some reason, Joe Biden wants an extra, I don't know, twenty billion dollars in COVID management funds, even though we don't have an accounting for the hundreds of billions of dollars that we just allocated a year ago for COVID management. And on top of which, we're doing this year's budget six months late. And Naturally. you would expect that to just be as a request that's in the budget because we're now in year three of this pandemic. And HHS probably should start budgeting for normal management of what is going to be clearly an endemic uh, virus. Um, so... They were they've been negotiating this at the leadership level. They don't have because because of the omnibus process, they're not involving the committees. And the Republicans insisted on offsetting the, the spending costs for the extra whatever it was going to be. It ended up being something around sixteen and a half billion dollars. And so they were going to take it out of the state and local aid package that passed a year ago. Um, and Nancy Pelosi agreed to this and Republicans said they weren't going to spend new money on this because we've already spent enough new money. If they want to reallocate some of the existing money that hasn't been spent, then, uh, they're willing to go along with that. And Nancy Pelosi thought she had a deal. They announced the deal. They announced the votes. We're coming to a, a pretty hard, um, uh, deadline on this because the existing CR runs out over the weekend. Right. Um, and so they need to start taking votes on this package to get it passed so they don't run into a government shutdown. And her progressive members threw a fit yesterday um, when they found out that, that when, when they read the bill before it was passed, when they found out what was in the bill before they passed it, they threw a fit about the offsets. And rather than, um, rather than trying to work it out, they actually had to pull all of the extra COVID funding out of the omnibus bill. Now they're going to try to float it as a state. Which is a train wreck. And that's coming off of this last weekend, the House Ways and Means Committee tried to put through a, we're getting off of Russian oil. That was a bipartisan bill that would have passed both houses. And Joe Biden personally called Ways and Means and then personally called Nancy Pelosi to say, you can't do this to me. You're going to cut my legs out from under me. And they both told him to go blank himself because you're politically killing us. We can't sit here and support buying Russian oil. It's politically right. untenable. Right. So it led to Joe Biden on Tuesday saying, well, we're getting off of Russian oil. Well, great, dipshit. Everybody else did first. Right. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, that's that's two really bad episodes for the for for Nancy Pelosi's house in four days. Right. Right. So naturally, here is Nancy Pelosi recovering, um, offering up her foreign policy chops. In fact, when I spoke to President Zelensky, I said, Billie Jean King sends you her regards and wants to know how she can help in an event. Billie Jean King. Billie uh, Jean King. So she served that one up, huh? <laughs> um, yeah, because apparently Zelensky needs a little work on his backhand. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um... I would call that one a a, a foot fault by, uh, by Billy Jean Pelosi. King. Billy, and not, not, not no knocking Billy King here, but I mean that. Imagine, that... imagine you're Zelensky, and you're on the other end of that phone call, and your English is so so. It's not great. It's okay. It's kind of conversational, but you don't know all. You don't know every cultural reference. You're Zelensky. 
and you've got a couple people around you that are like translators to help you out. And Nancy Pelosi pulls that one on you. Hey, I got Billie Jean King here and she sends her regards and she wants to help any way she can. And you're Zelensky and you're going, what's a fudge, a fudge. And you, and you got a guy typing on his keyboard madly. What'd you do? 78? <laughs> Lesbian? Tennis player? I mean... Billie Jean King, though. <laughs> Billie Jean King. She beat Bobby yes. Riggs. She beat Bobby Riggs. She can beat the Russians. <laughs> I don't it's, know. I, I, it's really... it's madness, Ed. It's just we are led at all levels by Democrats right now. At, at everywhere you look, they are fall down stupid. They they are yes. as dumb as this desk. Yes. Yes. And we're and and we and we are actually entertaining the idea that we are a whisker away from nuclear war. Now, I don't think we're going to get there. God knows I don't want to get there, but we are closer to a nuclear war than we have been since you and I were little kids, right? Well, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, actually, I think. Right. Yeah. Since since we were it was before I was born and since you were a little kid, right? It was, it was slightly, be, that was slightly before I was born. <laughs> okay. So, okay. You're, you're what? You're four years older than I am? I, well, I'm 59. Okay. You're four years older than I am. So it was right before you were born. It was like five, six years before I was born. We have not been this close. And when I mean this close, I mean, of all the players that are involved in this theater that's going on right now, all it takes is one mistake yeah one bomb going the wrong side of a border it, it takes one mistake and and all and and it's game on right it's right. one mistake and what's the chance Do, low odds i would say but there it's a non-zero chance of some idiot because if you think russia has full command and control of all their resources and troop deployments they don't so what happens if one Russian uh, group launches a raid somewhere thinking they're somewhere and they're not, and they hit something that they shouldn't have hit and it belongs to a NATO partner? It's right. game on. It's game on. So that, that prompts the question, Dwayne, as to why we're, why we're making Russia our partner in uh, talks with Iran over their nuclear weapons development. And, and because we are as thoroughly unserious about foreign policy as we have ever been. Yeah. Joe Biden is, he is, at least James Buchanan probably had some redeeming qualities if you really deep, uh, dig deep down. It would take, it would take a lot of digging. It would take a lot of digging. But again, I mean, we talked to Dr. Uh, Dr. Michael Oren from Israel today, and they're just, they're like, I don't even know where to start of how bad of an idea this is. There is nothing, nothing good that comes out of the Iran deal. Well, zip, nothing. And, and you had Jen Psaki last night, right? Talking because Russia accused Ukraine of, of holding, um, of conducting uh, chemical and biological weapons uh, uh 
exploration, I guess you could call it, research for the United States. So we had several facilities in there, and that's one of the reasons why Russia is going in there. And Jen Psaki says on Twitter, has this whole long string about, uh, we took note of Russia's false claims about alleged U.S. biological weapons labs and chemical weapons development in Ukraine. This is preposterous. It's kind of disinformation operation we've seen repeatedly from the Russians over the years in Ukraine and in other countries, which have been debunked. An example of the types of false pretexts we've been warning that the Russians would invent. Okay, so why do you have Mikhail Ulyanov <laughs> negotiating the U.S. position in Iran? I mean, this is the most idiotic uh, decision that I think I've seen in foreign policy is outsourcing American security to Russia, of all places, in conjunction with China <laughs> yes. to contain Iran on a rogue weapons program when Jen Psaki, in this long uh, string last night, uh, talks about how they violate the chemical and biological weapons um, conventions and how they have operating programs in contravention of international law. And, if and, that's the case, why would you have Russia at the table you in this wouldn't, thing? You wouldn't. And, and here's another thing that would make this a non-starter in any sane world. Margaret Brennan of CBS News reported this two nights ago in a print story, not not for Face the Nation, but a print story. Margaret Brennan's a serious reporter. She's, she's yeah. she hosts Face the Nation. The State Department knows of is fully aware of a current threat assessment that has elevated of Iran embedding hit squads in the United States with the intent of finally avenging Soleimani by taking out former senior officials like Mike Pompeo and Brian Hook at State and some others uh, that, that are on their hit list, John Bolton among others. So Iran is actively trying to embed hit squads in the U.S. State knows about it, is fully aware of it, and according to Margaret Brennan's reporting, state is willing to look the other way and ignore that because they don't want that to interfere with the with the prospects of the deal. Yep. It should be a non-starter. Absolute non-starter. Absolute non-starter. It's, non it's as if, according to Margaret Brennan's reporting, it's as if the White House thinks that if they whack a former Trump official, it's an acceptable loss if they can get the deal. Right. Yeah, it's exactly what it is. It's not even like that's exactly what it is. That's that's precisely the calculation. Speaking of calculations, Dwayne, we're out of time. I so know, we got to talk know, about what's coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show. Well, <clears> you <throat> tell me you're hosting. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm hosting. So I'm coming up on tomorrow's Hugh Hewitt show at 6 a.m. Eastern time, 5 a.m. in God's time zone, 3 a.m. on the left coast. We don't have any guests set up yet, but we might we'll probably have a couple of guests. We, we probably will, but there yeah. really is no other story than what's going on with 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 the you know the of, of evolution of this of this war. Oh, right? there's other stories. There's there's inflation. There's, there's inflation. This omnibus bill. There's this. Uh, you know the, the the polling after the state of the I union think address. We, had, we had tons I think of if, stuff to talk about. I think if we had no guests at all. We've got plenty to talk about. Well, then you're going to see Ed Morrissey monologuing or maybe dialoguing because we're going to get Dwayne involved in this uh, for two hours tomorrow. And, of course, you've got the, um, the Hillsdale, Hillsdale hour right. at, at, at Larry Arnold beyond in, in hour three. Tar Tarzana Joe comes on tomorrow, by the way. He will so. make an appearance, yeah, as always. Uh, as always. So, yeah, Sonny Bunch won't be there. He can't make it this time. But, uh, yeah, so this is uh, 
This is going to be a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to that. And tonight on the Huniverse. Tonight on the Huniverse, um, uh, I will have a special guest. Um, Ed Morrissey will come on. Uh, Normally he's on on Wednesdays, but he was going to be on Thursday night today or tonight instead. Uh, Why? Because I had to umpire a little league game last night. And um, so I had to shift him over to Thursday night and thankfully he was available. And um, my guess is I when I wake up from my uh, from my nap here, uh, my guess is there'll, there'll be some stuff going on in the news that we can talk about. Wow, that bald sob really gets around. You know, <laughs> well, you know, as, as as I always say, between the two of us, we make a perfect ass out of ourselves. Don't we, we do, we do, absolutely. Just uh, do the head tilt there. All right. Dwayne Gentilissimo Patterson, Master of the Universe, H-U-G-H-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.com. I'll see you tonight, sir. In a few hours. Thanks as always. All right, folks. Stay tuned for more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Join me right now is Dr. Joel Zinberg, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute and Director of Public Health and Wellness at the Paragon Health Institute uh, to talk about the necessity or lack thereof of additional COVID funding. And Dr. Zinberg, great to have you with us for the first time on the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. Thank you for having me. My pleasure to be here. So we've spent an awful lot of money on the pandemic. And of course, some of that has been absolutely necessary. Some of it really hasn't been so much in the pandemic as to mitigate some of the secondary and tertiary impacts of it, the economic impacts of it. But there's been a ton of money spent directly on funding things like Operation Warp Speed, which produced you know at least three, maybe now four or five vaccines uh, for COVID-19. Uh, the the distribution methods for states and localities to get those vaccines out and some of the therapeutics have been developed uh, through some of that. But I mean, I think that if we're talking about the the direct spending on medical issues in the pandemic, we're talking probably at least a trillion dollars over the last two years. And now the Biden administration is saying that they're out of money for those efforts and they're coming back to Congress for more. And I know that you, you wrote about this in the New York post last week. Uh, tell us why this is, tell us all the different reasons why this is misguided. Well, look, I think, you know, the, basically much of this additional spending is, is unnecessary. It's wasteful. Uh, it may lead to more inflation and on a, very fundamental level, we've never had a good accounting of where all the previous money went. If you look at, you know, what the government has done over the last few years, there have been three major tranches of spending. One was back in the spring of 2020. Uh, and then there was a another big bill in the December of uh, 2020, right. uh, in the waning right. days of the Trump administration. And then there was the March of 2021, uh, another bill by the Biden administration passed with solely Democratic support, not a single Republican. And all told, you're you're up about five trillion dollars. You know, trillions, not billions. Uh, and there's never been a good accounting of where that money went. Uh, and and 
There are various reports indicating that as much as 500 billion of the federal money has never been obligated. There are a number of reports that uh, billions of dollars that were sent to the states and that they've received has never been spent. In fact, uh, it looks like only a fraction of the money that the states and local governments received has ever been spent. Uh, and some of it not even on stuff that you know, charitably speaking, one would say is related to combating COVID. So it would be a nice idea if we had an accounting of, of where all this money went before we decide to spend billions more. Well, I, I, I think that absolutely. And I mean, the, the number that they're putting out right now, I think is uh, $22.5 billion, um, which doesn't sound like a lot when you compare it to what has preceded it. But if, if we've got $500 billion, I mean, that's 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 more than 20 times that amount that's still sitting around that hasn't been allocated and right. a, a, that we know of anyway and again it's because there hasn't been a lot of accounting for this we do know that some of the other programs dr zenberg once there was some accounting done on some of the other programs like the uh paycheck protection program which i think was a good idea at the time um that there's been quite a bit of fraud and, and misallocation and all sorts of different problems that's run into lots of billions of dollars. And I think that's the reason why before we spend more money, we need to make sure that we've accounted for the money that's out there. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that That's a, an important first step. Then you really have to question why are we spending all this additional money now? You know, you're in a situation where cases, hospitalizations, deaths have declined precipitously you know, down by 80, 90% from their peak in mid-January. You're really approaching levels uh, that are among the lowest seen in the entire pandemic. Uh, we're at a situation, we're at a point where between vaccine immunity and natural immunity that one gets from recovery from a previous case of COVID, most of the population has immunity. Right. So again, why are we, we moving here? They're talking about new spending, you know, billions for outreach programs and education programs to tell people about the vaccine. You know, there's been a pretty constant drumbeat over the last year to get the vaccines. I don't think it's a problem, but we haven't spent enough time or money on trying to convince people to get the vaccines. I would urge everyone to get the vaccine, but I don't think, uh, you know, additional money spent on education is going to convince people who at this stage of the game are not vaccinated. So again, you have to wonder about that. Then they're talking about uh, tax credits for businesses so that they can provide family leave and sick leave. Right. Again, you're at a, you're at a point in the in the pandemic where number one, there's all this immunity. Number two, cases are going way down. Number three, you're in a point where the predominant strain is Omicron, which is noticeably milder than the other earlier strains. So you shouldn't have very many people who need to, uh, you know, stay home or take, stay home to take care of a loved one. So why are we spending money on, on that? And it, it seems like an invitation to pay people not to work. So uh, again, I, I sort of have to wonder, you know, why at this point are, are we doing this? And, and some of the, I, I can get into, but some of the, the plans are really sort of make very little sense and, and seem more like they're for publicity purposes to show that something's being done rather than uh, showing that they're actually necessary or that they're well thought out. Right. Well, that's been the hallmark of a lot of this response to 
uh, COVID-19. And uh, we can certainly get into that. You, you mentioned something about, you know, some of these special interests. Uh, you know, uh, our, our colleague over at redstate.com was writing about this uh, earlier today as, as we're recording this, um, talking about uh, part of the COVID relief funding, I think it was the third tranche, um, went to a group called Save Our Stages. Um, <laughs> it was part of the bailout from this pandemic. And I, I, I'm sure that listeners will recall, and I know that Dr. Zenberg, you know this, is that a lot of this stuff was done to, you know, give subsidies to arts and entertainment in order to keep them, um, in order to keep them afloat while there were pandemic restrictions on public gatherings. Um, but he points out in this is that, you know, the, the um, prominent beneficiary of Save Our Stages was Dana Frank, uh, who's a big deal in my former community of Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, she was, um, she's a friend of, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar's, um, she ended up, um, she ended up with about $10 million of that money, um, and, uh, to, to, you know, sort of benefit the, the save our stages thing. So, I mean, a lot of that money is going to well-connected people and you can maybe on paper say, well, look, I mean, there's. You can make an argument that, well, we've closed these venues. We've got to try to keep the people who are in them afloat. But that money seems to find its way to people who are fairly well politically connected uh, to the people who are actually disseminating this cash. And this is part of the reason why, first off, you shouldn't have a whole lot of government interventions that require more government interventions to fix. But, you know, in pandemics, sometimes you have to break a few things. But at some point, you have to stop doing that. <laughs> Right? And, and, and you have to, you have to dial down all of those issues because it really does lead to endemic corruption if left unchecked. Right. And look, there was no question that early on in the pandemic, and we're talking about spring of 2020, when business and, and commerce, everything was grinding to a halt. Restaurants were closed. Uh, all the theaters were closed. Businesses couldn't open you needed relief uh, and that was provided and thankfully things are finally opening up again you're you know even in new york city where i am from they have finally lifted all the various and sundry mandates including mask mandates for kids in school so you're now at a point where maybe these businesses can really start to uh, get up off their backs and and have their workers earn a living again uh, but if that money was, I, I don't know about this Save Our Stages uh, situation, but if the money was diverted to a small cadre of people and not passed down to the people who really needed, the people who worked in the theaters, whether it was as, as an actor or actress or, or just someone who took the tickets or was an usher, if the money was not passed down to them, that's a real crime. I mean, those folks ought to be held to account. And that's why I think you need this accounting that we, we spoke about right at the outset. Yeah, indeed. And and I, I mean, uh, I, I would say go over to redstate.com because Joe's got more information on that. I'm not necessarily sure that the money didn't eventually flow down to some people who needed it. But it became pretty clear, though, I think that that process was becoming politicized and it was going to the people who were the, the need was probably those who were more in the click, uh, or at least that's the risk, right? I mean, that's the risk when you start doing that type of stuff, when you have mm -hmm. that type of 
massive cash dissemination, this sort of helicopter cash approach without controls on where that money is going, who's administering it. And and honestly, it's a reason why you don't you don't break economies in the first place uh, is to prevent the necessity of doing these things. But th that was two years ago. I mean, you're right. You point out that that all that sort of ended two years ago throughout much of the country because by the fall and winter of 2020, you know, a lot of states stopped imposing mask mandates. I mean, I live in Texas now, and Texas hasn't had mask mandates, I think, since the fall of 2020. Um, mm -hmm. And, I mean, we could argue over the wisdom of that. Maybe you might want to have a point about that. But the but the point now is, is that the mask mandates are so out of favor that they're disappearing everywhere, even though officially the White House is still saying that they probably still need to be in place in, 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 in some in some aspects. But right, I mean, at this point now, we're no longer fixing problems that we're, we're not, no longer breaking things that require fixes. So why are we still spending money on this on an emergency basis, especially? Well, look, you know, it, it, the answer to that last question is that unfortunately, the current administration is of the ideological outlook that every problem, real or imagined, uh, has to be fixed with a government program. And the more money you spend, the better. Uh, and, you know, so, for example, if you look at their test to treat initiative, which is part of the uh, Biden administration's COVID package, yep. you will find that it's incredibly poorly thought out. They, they're saying that they're going to be opening these uh, locations in March. And we're already, I would point out that they, they, they've already, they announced it in March. So they're suggesting they're going to have this all open in March. Yet the the chief players involved here, the CVSs, the Walmarts, the Walgreens of the world, don't have any of the details. They don't know what locations they're looking at. They don't have lo uh, details about what's required and and what they're going to be doing there. All we know is the sort of promise that the president made in his State of the Union address is that. We're going to have these settings where you can go get tested. If you test positive, you'll get free oral antiviral pills on the spot. So it'd be nice to know who's going to be doing that. And it'd be particularly nice to know because the details here are extremely important. Right. You know, you're dealing with two drugs, one by Pfizer, one by Merck, which are authorized by the FDA with the very specific limitations. Not everyone can prescribe them. They're only supposed to be used in people who have mild to moderate symptoms and are at severe risk of progressing, uh, or at high risk, excuse me, of pro progressing to severe COVID disease. So right away, you've, you've limited that. Most people do not fall into those categories. And we have no idea from the government or any of the people who are supposed to run this, who's supposed to staff these centers? It's only supposed to be prescribed by physicians, uh, advanced practice nurses, and physicians assistants. Pharmacists cannot prescribe these medications. That's what the FDA says. So unless you're gonna know that you can staff these centers with those three categories, it's not going to work. Pharmacists can't do it. In fact, the pharmacy associations have complained about that, that it's, it's too narrow a situation. And if you 
prescribed carelessly, if you do just what the president seemed to be saying, that everyone who tests positive gets the pills, you're going to be over-treating because not everyone really should be treated. And you're going to be subjecting those people to medications that have some really severe drug interactions and potentially serious adverse effects. So I'll take, for example, the Pfizer drug, which is the far more effective drug. Uh, that drug is not supposed to be used in people who have severe uh, kidney disease or liver disease. It's got dozens of interactions with commonly used medications. This should not be prescribed willy-nilly. You, you really have to have a physician there or someone who's informed who's going to do that prescribing. So, uh, you know, again, this, I'm focusing there on a specific aspect of the program, but it really requires that you, before you rush off to spend more money, uh, because that's your ideological bent, that you seriously consider what you're doing and whether it's necessary or not. Well, and and uh, Dr. Zenberg, you're you're a um, you're the director of public health and wellness at Paragon Health Institute. So I mean, this is this is certainly right in your wheelhouse, right? I mean, let me let me. Let me frame this issue in a different context. I mean, COVID-19 is going to be with us now, probably permanently. Uh, it, it's not going to be SARS. It's not going to disappear because you've contained it. And uh, and the people who have it, who, who were exposed to it, um, have a lasting immunity against it. I, I We still don't know about lasting immunity. I think there's been some hopeful signs about uh, lasting immunity from vaccinations and natural exposure. But this is a virus that's going to keep kind of cycling around and probably end up being something like the flu, where you're going to have a different variant. You may have to, you may, there may be a different shot that you need to take at some point. Although, again, I think some of the, some of the um, information about uh, T and memory B cells has actually been pretty encouraging that that may not even, that may not even be necessary. But the point is that we're going to be needing to live with this. The emergency is over. So we shouldn't really be funding this as an emergency. Shouldn't this be more about planning within the budgets of HHS, CDC, NIAID as part of is is the same way they do for the flu or or any other uh, common infectious disease, even even the ones that are common and serious. Look, this is we hope this is going to become what's called endemic, meaning it's always there. It's just kind of there as a steady state. Um, you talked about the flu, which is the influenza virus. That's something that's always circulating. It comes back year after year with slight variations, which is why we have a new vaccine every year. That might be the situation uh, with COVID. We're going to have to see. Uh, at the moment, you know, we know that uh, the vaccines have remained effective with all the different variants in terms of keeping you from going on to severe disease. They, they're quite effective in keeping you from getting hospitalized or from dying. Uh, so again, as I said before, I would expect everyone, I would hope everyone would get vaccinated. However, there's always the possibility, just as there is with the flu, that even though it's endemic, you may have not just a small shift in the virus from year to year, you may have a large shift. And that's in, in effect what happened here. You had a new virus that we didn't have immunity to, and that can happen even with the flu. So I, I previously worked uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors where I was a senior economist and general counsel. And we did a study back in the fall of 2019 dealing with 
uh, preparations for a pandemic influenza and what could we do to spur vaccine innovation? And you know, we came to the conclusion you needed to have public-private partnerships to innovate, to adopt new vaccine uh, discovery and manufacturing techniques. And those, by the way, were precisely what was done in Operation Warp Speed. I was just about to say that's Operation Warp Speed, <laughs> right? Right. No, it exactly. In other words, providing the money to 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 speed the development of the vaccines, purchasing in advance so that you the uh, even though before the vaccines were authorized, uh, so that you would spur the the companies to take the risk of continuing to pump some of their own money into and conti continue the research. Those are important things to get going. Those are important things going into the future. But I think you're right. I think that has to be part of a larger effort, a larger reassessment, not just throw another $22 billion or another $30 billion or whatever happens to be the amount du jour uh, at, at a, a, a problem that isn't emergent at the moment. This isn't to say that it, it should be you know, wrapped up, forgotten and ignored. It obviously is a problem that we have to consider both for COVID and for influenza and for lots of other infectious diseases. So yes, these are problems that have to be addressed. That be addressed in a sort of calm, considered way, not sort of ad hoc throw money at it. Indeed, and and I would just uh, I know we're we're close to being out of time here, but I do want to just address one other point on that, which is that you're hearing already people saying, "Well, we need to spend a lot of money on the next pandemic," and you're sort of addressing that. But I, I want to address that a little bit more directly. The way you do that isn't to spend money up front on something that you don't know. I mean, you, you talked about this um, in terms of Operation Warp Speed. You actually have to have, you know, the virus or the, you know, the infecting agent in order to, in order to develop these types of vaccines, in order to develop the response, because each one's going to be different. They're going to affect different populations. It's going to be a different set of circumstances. The, the point, though, is, is that we need to be able to make those decisions and have the mechanisms in place. And, and, and so my, my, my question for you is this, Dr. Zinberg, you're an expert at this. Have we learned those lessons over the last two years? Are we actually going forward with reforms that will, that will expedite that process and make us more efficient? Or are we simply just throwing emergency money at the same old structures that don't really work for that type of response? Well, I think what we've learned in the last two years is that we have to change the structure a bit. In other words, I think, unfortunately, public confidence in, in the public health apparatus has been undermined. Uh, it all seemed a bit ad hoc. There were times when uh, data collection was bad. There were other times when data was collected but not shared with the public. Uh, and there were other times when the public was frankly misled. Uh, so, um, I think the public wasn't trusted, and now the public doesn't trust the, the various public health authorities because of that. So, I think there's a lot of repair that has to take place going forward. And, and, we, and on a more sort of fundamental institutional level, we have to lay the groundwork for the type of research and development and spurring of innovation that we saw on a very accelerated basis during Operation Warp Speed. We have to lay the basis for that going forward. Yep, 
I agree. And Dr. Joel Zimberg, thank you so much for being with us. Competitive Enterprise Institute can be found at CEI.org. Um, where can people find out about Paragon Health Institute? Well, you can Google Paragon Health. I don't remember the, the exact website name off the top of my head, but Google Paragon Health Institute and it will pop right up. Ah, Paragoninstitute.org. Paragoninstitute.org. I, I looked it up while, yeah. you're, while you were while you were talking, so I just want to make sure it gets in there. Paragoninstitute.org. That's where you can go. I, I'm sorry. Continue on about what Paragon Institute uh, actually does, sir. No, it's it's a it's a new uh, think tank that's devoted to analyzing public health issues and and science in general. So we're focusing. We have four initiatives focusing on uh, pr uh, provision of private health uh, and private health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, and then my initiative, which is dealing with public health and American wellness. So it's brand new, and and we've already produced. Uh, uh, a, a product dealing with uh, how the states can uh, contribute and how we shouldn't wait for just the federal government. It's called Don't Wait for Washington. Well, that's terrific. And again, you can go to paragoninstitute.org for more on that. And um, Dr. Joel Zinberg, thank you so much for, um, for being with us today. And I hope we can get you back to talk more about some of the initiatives later at Paragon Health. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we'll have more from the Ed Morrissey Show. Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show. Joining me for a nice change of pace to get off of this existential doom wheel that we're all on these days. Christian Toto of HollywoodandToto.com, my friend and yours, um, comes back to visit us. Talking about the Oscars, talking about all the news that's around that, talking maybe a little bit about wokeness and comedy, because he's got a great post up. Uh, just went up today on Wednesday, I believe, about wokeness and comedy. Did it kill comedy? Yes, it did. But we're going to talk about that, too. <laughs> Christian, great to have you back on. I feel like I'm the official palate cleanser for your show, and I appreciate that. Uh, hey, I mean, honestly, uh, <laughs> you know, when I'm filling in for Drew... Um, on Fridays, I always like to finish with, you know, just something that is fun. So I either invite you or, or, or Stephen Gradanis to come on to talk about movies. And um, and uh, both of you guys are great. Uh, different perspectives, but you bring the same joie de vivre, right, to <laughs> to this. So, yeah, it's uh, it's great to have you on. Really appreciate you, you doing this. Um, you know, let's start off with the wokeness and the comedy thing. Because mm -hmm. I read that today and I thought... I really got to talk to Christian about this and then we'll talk a little bit about the Oscars thing. Cause that's coming up. Um, yeah. but wokeness and comedy, you, you, um, uh, you, you talk about this, about how you had these even recently, you know, at least fairly recently. Um, you had movies like knocked up wedding crashers, the hangover. There's something about Mary that were just raunchy fun, right? R rated, um, R-rated comedies that were just raunchy fun. Um, and Joe Rogan talks about, you, you mentioned that Joe Rogan talks about this on, on his podcast. You and I have talked about wokeness and comedy in the past. So tell us a little bit about what Joe Rogan had to say. And then let's talk a little bit about where comedy's gone. Yeah, well, Joe Rogan had a comedian on Tom Papa. Papa, Papa, he's a uh, stand-up comic. And they were talking, I didn't, you know, I didn't hear the whole episode, but... They ventured into movies and comedy movies, and, spe and more specifically, 
And Joe Rogan said that wokeness killed the, the big screen comedy. Now, what he means by that is the those R-rated style comedies, which you just mentioned, The Hangovers and all those those kinds of movies. They were outrageous. They were over the top. They were crazy. They weren't for kids, for sure. They were for adults. But they were very, very funny, honestly. And it's the kind of movie you see and the whole audience is laughing. And then you go home, you go, I got to tell my friends. You want to you kind of spread the word because you had a great time. You want them to have a great time, too. And I've been thinking about this for a while now is when was the last time there was a movie like that? And I can't remember in recent, recent years. I mean, obviously, we can go back to the early 2010s and all, but recently, what's what's new? Now, uh, we had Free Guy last year, which I thought was very funny and very charming, but it was like PG-13. Right. And then Hulu created uh, Vacation Friends with John Cena, who's a pretty funny guy, and the cast is pretty solid. I didn't get many laughs out of it. It's not the kind of movie I'd ever watch again. Where did they go? And I remember when Todd Phillips, the director, spoke about this. Now, he's the one who directed... Old School and Road Trip and the, the uh, Hangover trilogy. And he recently did Joker, which is not a comedy. And he said, you know, well, I looked at the landscape. I look what's going on in the culture. And you really can't do comedies like the ones I used to do not so long ago. Because this whole restrictive nature of you can't do this, you can't do that. You can't poke fun at this. You can't do, you know, you can't say these kind of things. You know, it, it's like taking all my tools away. And he was uh, attacked in the press for saying that. But he's right. And that's what Joe Rogan said. He said, where, where have all the comedies gone? It, it's a good point. It's an important point. I know it's just comedy, but it does speak to the culture at large. But Joe did drill down on something which I think is really interesting and I want to mention here. What he mentioned is you can do blood and violence and gore in movies today. It's, it's been the way it's been for a while. That's sure. fine. You like it, you like it, you don't know. He says, for some reason, when you do comedy, the, the people who are critical of this comedy movement they, they seem to think that laughing is an endorsement of sorts. That if you have a, an on-screen character like uh, John Belushi in Animal House, this is actually a real example, where he's looking in at the sorority girls and he sees them undressed. Right. And he's, you know, and we laugh at that because it's wrong. And it's kind of goofy and it's funny and it's something that we would never do. But we can laugh at a stranger doing it on the screen. And what Joe Rogan said, is, and which I think is true, is like there's something about sort of this comedy police movement where that laughter is an endorsement, like saying, oh, we agree with that. Well, we don't, but we can often laugh at things that are wrong. I mean, I don't want my wife to get a pie in the face, but if she get a pie in the face, some people might find that funny. And if you trip and fall and you end up in the pool, that may be humorous. I mean, there's lots of sort of darkness in comedy and lots of sort of anger in comedy and sort of inappropriate material that makes us laugh. It's it's instinctual. You know, we don't we don't want to laugh at someone tripping, but sometimes it does seem kind of funny. And, and a lot of movies bank on that. And you so know, I think what Joe yeah. was talking about was that, you know. Yeah, no, I think that's, I mean, I mean, you mentioned Animal House. And th there was a lot of things in Animal House that you, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily endorse. I mean, right, right. The, the, the most sympathetic character in Animal House ends up sleeping with a 13-year-old girl. I mean, <laughs> that's not exactly the type of thing that you think is going to be sort of an endorsement. Um, yeah. The you know the, uh, the the whole thing like you mentioned with the uh, with you know the peeping tom thing that John Belushi did nobody thinks that that's acceptable yeah it's just funny right and it's, it's wrong it's funny because it's wrong right I mean there was this whole thing if if you go back to the making of Animal House there's been a couple of documentaries about this um, the uh, studio executives were going to refuse to release it with the um, with the scene in the um, 
and the honky tonk, right? With mm-hmm. uh, when when they go into the in, into the primarily black honky tonk and and see you know uh, Otis Day and the Knights, and they walk mm-hmm. in and uh, there's the one the one line where the the guy saying we want to dance with your dates thing, mm-hmm. and and he actually uh, I think John Landis actually had to ask Richard Pryor to to take a look at it and and sort of give it an endorsement. And yeah. you know and I know that that scene would never ever past muster now we talk about blazing saddles but i mean i don't think you could make animal house either again at least not in the form it's in right now you could do old school Mm -hmm. which was actually a pretty funny movie actually was i was surprised at how much i liked old school (laughs) i was actually a little surprised by how much i liked old school and it's a but it's raunchy you got a guy sleep again you got a guy sleeping with a high schooler right Mm -hmm. um as 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 one of the setups we're not endorsing that yeah but it's you know and, and actually it's it's sort of a plot point because it sort of messes up his attempts to have an actual relationship with somebody else um but yeah i mean there's just i don't think there's any guts in comedy and and your post asks christian you know well what's is there is there even an attempt at politically correct uh, comedy movie or at least joe rogan asks this right mm. um I'll, I'll offer one <laughs> which i saw I the other day too. let's see what you say okay I just happened to see this on cable because I, I'll be honest with you, I, I I needed something on while I was hanging a bunch of shutters back up, all you know, plantation shutters up in my house because I'd taken them all down to get the windows replaced. Mm-hmm. So I just needed something on to keep me occupied. And I watched Blockers. <laughs> it's a terrible movie. It just doesn't work <laughs> at all. And it should. I mean, the concept is, the concept's hilarious, but it yeah, just yeah. doesn't work. No, I've got one that actually did work, and I was shocked that it was as funny as it was. And it's super woke. And it came out a couple of years ago and, and died a quick and horrible death at the box office. It was called Book Smart. And it's about these two high schoolers. Oh, They've yeah. been very, very studious all their scholastic life. They're going off to college. And they realize, oh, my God, some of their friends goofed off the whole time. And they're okay. And they want to kind of live, kind of live it up a little bit. And it's, you know, it's progressive, it's woke, it's it's all in your face. And yet it managed to be often very funny. And it, and that's a rare example of what we're talking about where it works. I, I saw block, I think I, I think I liked blockers a little more than you, but I didn't like it a lot, but I don't disagree. But I think with Booksmart, they really kind of threaded that needle, but why do we need to even thread that needle? Yeah. Why can't we be outrageous and body? And like you said, it's not a confirmation. I don't have daughters, but if I had a daughter and she was of college age, I don't want John Belushi-esque figures looking in on her. But if I'm in a movie theater and John Belushi's on the screen and he's wacky and hilarious and he's doing something inappropriate, I might find that funny. Right. And it's really weird. And I, just to throw a little, little wrinkle, I think I mentioned in the, in the story today, is that the woke left has no problem with hitman movies. We've got dozens of them. This whole John Wick is basically hitman, hitman killing hitman. And I don't care about that. It just is what it is. You can like it or dislike it. But why don't they have an, why aren't they upset about that? These people taking the law into their own hands, slaughtering so many folks. And in other movies, they're often the good guys. You know, John Wick is sort of, I guess, morally ambiguous at this point, although I think we, you know, they killed his dog. So we, right. But there are movies where it's pretty clear that we're meant to root for the hitman. And often maybe they have a change of heart. They want to retire. They don't like this business. Again, moral shades of gray, but where's the outrage? Why are you outraged about John Belushi in a comedy from 45 years ago 
but there's nothing about killers. I it just it's it's what drives me nuts, and what which it shows just so that the baked in dishonesty of this whole woke movement. Well, I agree. I agree. Baked in dishonesty in 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 spades absolutely about this stuff yeah. and uh, you know my my thing with blockers was that it was a great concept right and it had a good cast i mean i mm -hmm. actually think john cena is hilarious on screen i loved him in He's train wreck good i loved yeah. him in train wreck he was great in train wreck you know um and i'm not a amy schumer fan at all but that was actually a funny movie and in part because it was at least somewhat <laughs> it was at least somewhat politically incorrect uh -huh, right, the yeah. whole sequence in the in the movie theater with you know the <laughs> with John Cena <laughs> referencing Grinder and I'm oh my gosh, it was absolutely yeah. hilarious. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it, blockers didn't work for me because the the attempts at woke really were just so painfully obvious. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, Gary Cole was funny. That whole sequence with Gary Cole and his wife, the two sequences with Gary Cole and his wife were hilarious. Um, but uh, it, the movie itself just didn't work at all. It just it, wanna, it just broke down. I want to throw another one into the mix. Uh, there was a movie a few years ago called Neighbors with Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, who's very funny, by the way. Yes. She, she's underrated as a comic actress. And it was good. It was funny. It was successful. And of course, they rushed out a sequel. Fine. You know, it's what they do. And it was called Sorority Rising was the subtitle. And I didn't like it it bombed at theaters it wasn't very funny it wasn't sort of it didn't have the spark of the first one and you, know, you could say maybe it was a one one and done concept where it was good the first time you could you couldn't replicate it maybe maybe not because i read the behind the scenes story of that movie and they actually hired two female screenwriters to kind of oversee the project and make sure that it was empowering now empowering in and of itself is nothing wrong with that but if I'm seeing an, a raunchy R-rated comedy with Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne, I think empowerment is not on my top top to-do list. Right. I had to make this a great movie. And it wasn't. And it wasn't a good movie. And it wasn't funny. And it might have been it might have been empowering to the 10th degree, but who cares? Because no one saw it because it was bad. Right. And that was an early example, because that's maybe, I'm gonna guess 2016 or maybe 2017. Something like that, ago. yeah. Yeah. But it's it's more intense now, and I guess now they just don't even try these kind of movies. No, and I think you run into, um, I think that this is just, again, you run into this whole thing that everything has to be didactic. Yeah. You can make, I mean, the didactic works in dramas, you know, mm -hmm. quite often. It doesn't really work in comedies because comedies are, by their nature, have to be irreverent and, and somewhat iconoclastic in order mm -hmm. to work. I mean... The whole thing in Animal House, for instance, is going after, you know, Dean Wormer, the establishment, you know, the you know, Blazing Saddles works because it goes after, you know, <laughs> Governor Lepetamane and, um, and um, <laughs> uh, Hedley Lamar, you know, uh, <laughs> Harvey Corman's Hedley Lamar. Uh, you know, there's something about Mary kind of even works along those lines, too. It goes against the sort of establishment idea of, of romance movies yeah right and what about the slobs versus the snobs i think that was the the pitch for caddyshack wasn't it the slobs versus the snobs yeah, yeah. again you know it, 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 there's always an element of tearing something down of 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 skewering somebody's you know um mm -hmm. you, know, you know somebody's ox has to get gored and it has to be it has to be an ox that everybody recognizes so it has to be somewhat archetypal mm -hmm. um and and that's what makes comedy work if, if you are punching down, right, and, and I think this is what it gets down to, 
in comedy anyway. Because I think you can make this work in dramas depending on how it's structured. But in comedy, mm. if you're punching down at the audience for their beliefs, right? I mean, the, the whole thing is that you want the audience on your side. We all want to be, we all want to be in, in Delta. We don't want to be mm. in, um, in uh, what what was the what was the other fraternity in in Animal House? I forget, I forget. We don't want to be in Niedermeyer's fraternity. We want <laughs> we want to be in Otter's fraternity. We want to hang out with Otter. Uh, you know, <laughs> right? Um, so if if the whole thing is this sort of didactic, it's lecturing the audience and it's telling them that they're not cool. <laughs> it's yeah. not it's not funny. It doesn't work. And I want to mention one other thing about some of these comedies, not all. I think American Pie is a good example. I just rewatched Shallow Hal. I think it's a great example here. Now, Shallow Hal is a movie about it's a lot of fat jokes and we don't really do that anymore. And, and there's a part of me that gets that. And it it's it's sort of low hanging fruit. In a it way. is. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the point of that movie, and you can say, well, they're making fun of fat people, and, and at times they are, but they're also ripping away our ego and sort of saying, well, it's really about, you know, true love. It's about decency. It's about looking past appearances. I mean, that is the ultimate message of the film. Uh, a lot of these R-rated movies have a real sweet emotional center. You could call it conservative. You can call it moralistic. I don't know, you know whatever you're going to phrase it. But I also think it's interesting that a lot of the best of these movies does do that. Uh, 40-Year-Old Virgin, at the end of the day, our hero <laughs> decides to wait until marriage before he has sex. The whole movie is about how making fun of him for being a virgin and how he wants to lose his virginity. And then when he meets a great girl, instead of hopping in bed right away, he waits till their wedding night. I mean, yeah. what could be more uh, you know, old-fashioned than that? And I think we miss that too when we when we kind of basically erase these kind of movies because very often they have that. I don't think Animal House had that. I think that was irreverent and Caddyshack too. But a lot of the newer ones, I, I think that that sort of, that interesting moral compass amidst all the R-rated chaos and the nudity and the banter and the bawdiness is actually a, a sweet film. And I, yeah. I, you can't even get there now because you didn't go in the other, because that the, the, the first half of the journey is not allowed. Yeah, you know, and I think Apatow actually does pretty good at... At, at that type of, yes. of of comedy, even when it doesn't work. I mean, I, I watched This Is 40 and it was really a struggle for me to sit through that thing because <laughs> I didn't think it worked. Um, yeah. But it wasn't because it was overly woke. I just thought that it was just overly not funny. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> maybe because, maybe I just related to it a little bit too much. Right? <laughs> um, but, um, but I think normally he's pretty good at that type of thing. And... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't see an Apatow, you know, R-rated Apatow film coming out. Um, at least I'm not aware of one uh, that he really tells that new, film. He has a new movie coming soon, but it's more like a satirical spoof of Hollywood, maybe a touch about COVID. It doesn't feel like a Judd Apatow movie. It, it might be called The Bubble coming on Netflix very soon. But, oh. you know, I look at the comedy landscape, I'm thinking... Who are the big stars? Like Adam Sandler, who just works for Netflix now, but also Will Ferrell and Seth Rogen and Amy Schumer. Uh, you know, a lot of these players who are talented that used to make these big kind of crazy body comedies, they just don't do it anymore. And then, and when they do stuff for like streaming platforms, they're they're not very successful. Melissa McCarthy's career is just withered. And she's a very funny lady, but yeah. I don't know whether it's woke is complaining her or just bad writing. I think she's really been stuck with some bad projects. But, you know, I, I kind of like a culture where we can go to the movies every couple of months and see a really rip-roaring comedy. 
And even if it isn't hilarious, maybe there's one or two scenes that are just like that, that was funny, but we don't even get that. No. And again, I think it's because they're too into the didactic. All right. Yeah. Let's change, let's change uh, course here and talk about the Oscars. Uh, there's already controversy with the Oscars. Um, the biggest controversy with the Oscars is <laughs> who really gives a shit these days. I'm sorry. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> the PG-13 <laughs> PG version. I, I mean, I, first off, and you know me, I, I have... I, I have made no bones of the fact that I refuse to watch these things anymore. They're just, it's just a, a bunch of idiots lecturing people about stuff they don't know about um, and completely unentertaining, right? As a result, I mean, it's it's sort of of the same piece that we were just talking about. Is that there? It is, it is, you're right. Yeah. Um, there, the controversy this year, <laughs> My apologies, folks. The, the controversy this year, though, is that they've trimmed off some of the awards in order to make the in order to make the televised ceremony last somewhat shorter than, um, you know, a back to back showing of Gone with the Wind and Dr. Zhivago. Um, two films, by the way, uh, that neither one of which really captured my attention. <laughs> um, but um, and a lot of people are kind of ticked off about this. And I kind of understand why. I mean, these are important. These are important categories. These are mm -hmm. filmmaking categories. But I think people have to remember that there's already a number of important technical categories that don't that aren't part of the big gala event. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. They've got to shorten the show. I guarantee, even with this tweak, it will not be shorter, or it won't be dramatically shorter. So right. I think they're going to fail anyway. Um, they're trying to do two things. They're trying to appease the artistic community, which I get, but they're also realizing this is a, a showcase for Hollywood. It's on ABC. They need certain amount of ratings for a lot of different reasons. There's a lot of, of different, I guess, uh, measures that the Academy, the Academy body uh, partakes in each year. And I think that this, this, this one annual event will help fuel them economically. So there's that. But at the end of the day, I think the artists don't realize that 99% of America just, they just don't care who the best editing uh, award goes yeah. to. And th that sounds mean, and it doesn't dismiss the skills of those particular artists. It's just reality. And and so what I'm thinking is, you know, how the, the Oscars, they want to get better ratings and they want to shrink the show, but they don't really want to address the two problems with the show. The arrogance, the, the, the lectures, the elitism, uh, the lack of a great host. They, they push all those realities aside and say, well, I know, we'll fix it by trimming this one, a few categories down by a little bit. So by doing that, they really don't impact the show that much. They don't really bring anyone new to the fold and they anger their own community. But that's just how bubbled in their thinking they are. You know, they picked Amy Schumer, who's doing a media tour right now, where she all she's talking about is her feminism and all her views. And that's exactly the persona that has chased away half the country when it comes to the Oscars. Yeah. And yet you just chose her to be one of three hosts. Are you kidding me? Are you crazy? Can you please raise your hand and say, we need some help from an outsider because I'd love to come in and just give them sip. Cause you know, at the end of the day, you and I do love movies. And at the end of the day, you and I used to watch this show yep. and probably enjoy this show. They need us back, not us, the two of us. They need people like us back. And they have no legitimate ability or interest 
in getting us back. They want it's the shuffling deck chairs in the Titanic. It's well, it's almost it's almost more comical than that. So here's I think what the issue is, fundamentally, conceptually, what the issue is, is that the Oscars used to be oriented to the audience. Mm. You know, we're going to bring out a lot of really great stars. We're going to yeah. have them dress up in, in, in the absolute finest that the fashion mm. industry can design. We're going to do the red carpet thing. You're going to see all of your favorite stars. And then we're going to do this really gala awards event. And you're going to be in the, the balcony, basically, yeah. you for got this thing. You got a ticket, right? Yeah. And yeah. and the stars are going to go out there and they're going to be gracious and they're going to thank you for, uh, for you know, for your participation and you're going to feel like you had a chance to hang out with them for a few minutes and everybody yeah. who loves movies you know loves those types of opportunities and about 40 years ago and i would actually maybe peg it about the same time that um maybe 50 years ago when sasheen littlefeather took you know accepted um george c scott's oscar mm -hmm. and certainly by the time that uh vanessa redgrave got up and did her you know, declaratio for the Palestinian mm -hmm. cause. And Patty Chayefsky got up and and chewed her out for it on stage mm -hmm. not long afterwards. Um, it became all about them. This was, this was their event and it was all about them and they were focused on themselves and you could watch from the outside, but it's not about you. It's about us. Uh -huh. You know, I agree with that. I think it's a great point. But I think the examples you mentioned were, were still one-offs at that time. They were the exception, not the rule. But now almost every other speech is some sort of cause celeb. Almost every other joke is not just a joke, but it's got a purpose behind it. So I, I think that was where it began. But I still think the show itself was mostly as you described and mostly an outreach. But I think the, the sort of the seeds that were planted in those early days have bloomed right now. And now it, it is all about them. So they want it both ways. They want it to be all about them, but then they want all of us to watch. Right. You can't really do it both ways. No, you can't do it both ways. And that's the reason why, you know, the, the real solutions to this are to increase the, um, to in, increase the live performances and to decrease the live speeches. Yeah. Right. Um, do more of the songs or at least do the songs right and and and, and maybe uh have a, a, some more of the clips from the movies themselves and limit speeches to 30 seconds or less anything else you want to say go out yeah. to the go out to the um you know go go out to the press room afterwards and and say whatever you want to say i mean yeah i mean and some of that stuff is actually better than than it is on stage i remember spike lee's response to um uh, the green book <laughs> winning over uh -oh. his movie and uh -oh. i can't remember exactly what he said um but it was something like you know as uh, something about a black man being in a car <laughs> I can't remember. it was a driving miss daisy reference i can't remember what it was he had a few drinks before he got it to say it i thought it was absolutely hilarious i didn't agree with it but i thought it was absolutely hilarious very entertaining and he did it very he was very entertaining when he was doing it so it's not that those types of things don't get noticed right but just Graciously thank everybody, you know, briefly and get yeah. off the stage and let's get on to the next thing so we can see some more clips from those movies so we can all enjoy the experience of movies rather than the experience of 
political lectures, which we get every damn day. Um, otherwise, it's there's nothing special about the way that they're doing the Oscars. That's really what the issue is. You know, a couple of years ago, I was watching, I don't even know if it was the Oscars, it was an award-like show. And I think it was Adam Sam, Andy Samberg and maybe Sandra Oh, and they were giving their monologue. And I thought, it's not really funny. Like, not, yeah. it wasn't even in the, the I remember that. funny. I remember that. And yep. I thought, and I thought, okay, now here's a show that takes months to do. And I'm sure they've got many writers and I'm sure they didn't start writing the jokes yesterday. So there's no excuse not to have a few killer jokes in there. Even if I don't love them, at least I can recognize that was pretty clever. There wasn't any of that. And I thought, well, why? What's going on? How could this show, which takes months to make, which has all these people, it has all the money, why aren't they writing a funny monologue? And I thought, oh yeah, they don't wanna write a funny monologue. They wanna give some virtue signaling about representation, about female empowerment, about diversity. That is their prime directive with these monologues. Now, I know you're not gonna watch the Oscars later this month, but you'll probably <laughs> catch some clips. Yeah. And I guarantee when you watch these hosts, the three hosts, I guess they do three monologues, I have no idea what's gonna happen. But when they're telling jokes, I guarantee that the focus is gonna be on diversity and empowerment and whatever issue du jour is on the plate, as opposed to let's just tell a really funny joke because that would be funny. And that would bring people like you and I back into the fold because you know what? I don't like some of these celebrities, but that monologue every year, it's so funny. It's like the best jokes. It's five minutes of just laughter, laughter, laughter. It's not what they wanna do now. They have right. a different agenda. So it's not funny. It's Clapter. They're looking for Clapter. At best, Clapter. Sometimes it's not even related to this comedy. And that's why Ricky Gervais a couple of years ago was so crazy because he really wanted to make us laugh. No, he went the extra mile and was poking fun in Hollywood. And that was cathartic, at least for me. I'm sure it was for you. Yeah. But I also think that if you hired Ricky Gervais and you said, okay, do your thing, don't make fun of us, but do your thing. I think he would just write some really funny jokes and just tee him off. And the show would get off with, with a bang. But I, I just don't think that's their their prime directive now. I really don't. Maybe maybe the, sh the new show will surprise me. Maybe, you know, Amy Schumer is not, it is funny, can be funny. But I, actually, I just read an interview just seconds before we started talking about her prep for this. And she she tried a few jokes out on, the, I guess, the Oscar producers. And they were sitting there stone-faced, in part because she's telling dirty jokes. And like, I don't mind dirty jokes. And she can be funny with her dirty jokes. But this is the Oscars. This is not the time for dirty jokes. How about funny? Right. Can you bring us some funny? And she seemed just clueless about that. And then, you know, she's talking about feminism and how she's, you know, all the, I'm thinking, we don't want. Oh, no, the Oscar producers, want, the Oscar producers do want that. That's the problem. If, you know, you're, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Because that's why they hired her. You don't hire an Amy Schumer and think, well, she's not going to be feminist. She's not going to be political. She's not going to be raunchy because that's who she is. Well, Wanda Sykes. Wanda yeah. Sykes is one of the other, it's, it's Amy Schumer, Wanda Sykes, and I can't remember who the third woman is. Regina Hall, who is not even a stand-up. She's just an actress. I mean, she's pretty funny in the scary movie movies. I mean, yeah. I'm not insulting her, but there's not, a, if you polled Americans and who's Regina Hall, I would bet less than 1% know who she is. And yeah. again, she's a working actress. There's nothing wrong with her. But why would you pick her to host movies biggest night? What's the, what's the upside? I'm not sure, other than it, it, it probably fits a diversity slot. I mean, she's black Wanda, and she's female. She's black and she's female, and Wanda Sykes is also black and female, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, overtly lesbian. Overtly lesbian. 
Yeah, yeah. And she's a <laughs> and she's comedian. And and Amy Schumer is mm-hmm. Amy Schumer. She's Chuck Schumer's yeah. niece. And yeah. you know, and again, nothing. I, I actually think Regina Hall might have been the best selection out of the three because if you want to <laughs> actually do, I mean, here's here's a thought. If you actually want to do an elegant, uh, open-minded mm-hmm. Oscars. I'd say put Tom Hanks up there next to um, Regina Hall and have them just graciously yeah. host the show and talk about the movies and discuss discuss the experiences of, of the various different movies and, and be a traditional MC pair. Put Tom yeah. Hanks up yeah. there with, with Regina Hall, and I guarantee you, you do better at attracting an audience than you're going to get with Amy Schumer and Wanda Sykes. You're right. And by the way, Regina Hall is a funny comic actress. She is. And I don't, I don't know of any baggage she brings, politically speaking, left or right, which I think is important at this point. But, you know, obviously yeah. Schumer and, and Sykes, you know, bring Samsonites full of, of you know, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I've, I, like I said, I've liked, I liked Amy Schumer in, in Trainwreck. I thought it was, a, I thought it actually that was sort of a daring, um, a daring movie for her. She was not a very sympathetic character throughout most yeah. of that. Um, and, and it really does talk about being a train wreck and, and what a dead end that was. And, you know, Brie Larson was in that movie this is before, you know, Captain America, uh, really vaulted her up and she was terrific in that movie. Hey, put Brie Larson up there with mm-hmm. her. I mean, just the, the, they actually had pretty good chemistry as sisters in that movie. What did put Brie Larson up there with Amy Schumer? Maybe you get some sort of magic out of that, but, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I, I just, it's. Just I'm just really not all that interested in seeing how that turns out. I know you're not going to watch, but if you were to watch, and I like if you and I were in a room together watching it, I guarantee from our seats we could watch the show as it unveils live, and think, okay, that could be cut, that could be cut, that could be cut, that could be shorter. I, I don't think any show of this kind needs to be three hours long. I really no. don't. I mean, you know, here's the nominees, couple of things, here's a speech, do it, do it a bunch of times. That is not three hours worth of material, but there's always this bloat and this majesty and this sort of, uh, you know, this pomposity to it. Right. You could, you could reimagine the Oscars. They don't want to. No, they don't. And they, again, because they're doing it for themselves, they're, they're getting what they want. They're not going to get ratings, but they're getting what they want out of it. Speaking of ratings though, you got to go over to hollywoodandtoto.com and visit, uh, visit Christian's uh, pad over there and uh, follow him on Twitter at Hollywood and Toto. Um, and, uh, you know, make sure that you stay on top of all of that. And uh, even if he's talking about the Oscars, got to stay on top of everything he's talking about over there. <laughs> got some great reviews over there as well. And um, just really quickly, uh, uh, before we before I let you go, and I know we're running over here just a little bit, but did you get a chance to see Inventing Anna on Netflix? Not yet, no. I'm a little behind. I was traveling over the weekend, so I have not been watching as thoroughly as I should. Is it worth checking out? It is very much worth checking out. I mean, oh, okay. it's not it's not perfect, but it is very good. Actually mm. tracks fairly decently with the facts in the case. Um, okay, good. It's, it's told in Rashomon style. So, mm. you know, you're getting perspectives of different um, characters. So there's some obvious ways in which they, the interpretations differ between the characters. And so... You, there's a lot that's left on the on the viewers to determine what they think is um, mm-hmm. 
you know what they think the reality is but it is very good it's very interesting okay. i i was i i found it very compelling it was one of those things i can't wait to get to the to final episode and then i'm really sorry it's over because it's an enjoyable yeah, yeah. ride so yeah um so i'd recommend that if you get a chance okay. I, I i'm gonna eventually write a review it i guess at some point when right. when things settle down who knows <laughs> all right christian toto man thanks so much always great talking with you and we'll catch up again soon thanks so much all right, folks, stay tuned for more from The Ed Morrissey Show.